Hi, this is Bachelor Clues from Game of Roses, of course, and I want to talk about Club Med. Everybody knows Club Med has been the pioneer of the all-inclusive resort since 1950 with almost 70 resorts worldwide, ranging from beachside destinations in the Caribbean and Mexico to exotic locations like the Maldives and Morocco, or even the mountain destinations like Japan and the European Alps. Dine on delicious gourmet cuisine, enjoy more than 20 activities, and make memories with your family. For more information, visit clubmed.us or call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor. You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. So we're at Dungay in Daimosan. So it's a famous dim sum restaurant. It's been around for decades. I think it's been around for at least 50 years. And yeah, it's a well-known place for classic dim sum. It's a place that you have to go do everything yourself, basically, which is kind of fun. You get very independent. You go off and clean your own, uh, rinse off your own teapots, bowls, cups go grab your own dim sum and then everything's just tallied up at the end. Yeah, what do you feel being out there? I mean, it's the perfect day for it, right? The sky is blue, there's an autumnal breeze, <laughs> there's birds chirping, the leaves are swaying in the wind, we're eating dim sum out in the open. Yeah, it's beautiful. What could be better? Exactly, right? <laughs> We got the quail egg. We got the good. How do you feel about it? Super happy. I haven't had this for so long. Mm -hmm. You don't really get it a lot anywhere. And, uh, Why is it so hard to find the classic ones in the city then these days? Well, I don't, you know, you can kind of look at it. It's not the sexiest dim sum. It's just kind of like a, a blob of pork. It's got, you know, the little quail's egg on top and the wrapping kind of just covers it like a, like a veil. Uh, I think the main thing is quite high in cholesterol, you know, quail's eggs are quite high in that, so yeah. it really just fell out of favor because of, like, health reasons, but it's, uh, it's so flavorful, you know, quail's eggs have that deep, like, deep, deep flavor that you just can't get from, like, a regular chicken egg, so... So would it be fair to say that quail egg sumai is one of the endangered dim sum in Hong Kong? Absolutely. So quail's egg siumai, much like pork liver siumai, they're both becoming more and more rare. It's, it's really hard to find these in, in restaurants apart from the very old school dim sum parlors, like Feng Seng, like the old Lin Heng, and here. Right, well, yeah, well, that's what we're going to talk about in today's podcast, isn't it? We're going to talk about endangered dim sum such as these. I'm Sam Evans. And I'm Charmaine Muck. And this, this is, is Eat, Eat Drink, Drink Asia. Asia. To find out why certain dim sum dishes are at risk of going extinct, we're turning to our regular guest, Lisa Cam. Hi, everyone. I'm back. Lisa, today's episode is all about endangered dim sum dishes. Before we delve into why they're endangered, can you first identify what these dishes are? The classics like siumai hargao are still around. I also still see a lot of buns and chung fun. That's the steamed rice noodles. Did I get that right? 
Well, siomai, like pigeons, are still around, but it's very hard to find juyun siomai, which is more or less like a white peacock in a way, or pork liver siomai. Buns are still also very common, but what about dai bao or big buns? There's also more niche dishes like gun tong gao or big soup dumplings, not the ones that submerge dumplings into the soup, but the ones with soup wrapped inside the dumpling. You rarely see those in restaurants anymore. Yeah, the first time I tried big buns was when uh, we went to Junki, and if you want to eat that at a restaurant, you've really uh, got to go out of your way to get there. But Lisa, are there other restaurants in Hong Kong that still make these dishes? There's really not too many, unfortunately. But recently, I went to one that makes some of these dishes. They've got branches in Causeway Bay and North Point, not far from our office. Tam Kwoking is the owner of Fengsheng Restaurant. His restaurant first opened in Causeway Bay back in 1954. At that time, people were still carrying tiffin boxes for lunch. So it was still like rice and some dishes, probably some stir-fried vegetables, steamed meat patties, or maybe occasionally something like deep-fried. But the meals are still very kind of that home-cooked fashion that we see at home nowadays. Um, having uh, yum cha wasn't still a big concept yet. So when Mr. Tam started his restaurant, it was really small. There were only a handful of tables, and the place wasn't known for its dim sum yet. So when customers came and ordered dishes with rice, just like any typical Chinese meal, dim sum was ordered as an appetizer or an amuse bouche. And because the restaurant was so small, they only had classic dim sum. Fan guo is a general term for dumplings. Now, we all know about tiu zhao fan guo, which is uh, chiu chow dumplings, but that has a separate name because of its skin. It's a little bit more translucent and has a bit more tapioca powder in it. But fan guo in general is kind of like a flat style dumpling that um, the edges aren't curled. It's actually one of the oldest um, style of dim sum there is. Mr. Tam also sold ma lai gou, Cantonese sponge cakes and barbecue pork buns. What about chang fun? No chang fun because their kitchen was too small. Chang fun is actually think about it like a pancake station. You know, you need um, a flat area, and that person needs to roll each an individual one. Like if someone needs to be there flipping pancakes, so um, you actually need a bit more room for that, an extra station for that. <laughs> Mr. Tam went to Japan and then returned to Hong Kong in 1978. Hong Kong was becoming a lot more affluent, and there was a lot more money to be made back in his hometown. He came back and they relocated Fengsheng to North Point. The North Point one is a much bigger place than the one in Causeway Bay, and he actually told us that was when it was yum cha. And that was when they had huge kitchens with a lot more steamers and baking stations and deep fry stations like that. He said this one in North Point was a proper dim sum restaurant. A proper dim sum restaurant. So customers went to this place specifically to eat dim sum, right? Yes, especially for lunch. So Mr. Tam had to include more dim sum in his menu. And that's when he started serving chung fun or steamed rice rolls and soup dumplings. 
So Mr. Tam has been serving soup dumplings since the late 70s. But Lisa, why is this dish so rare now? I asked Mr. Tam the same question. And it has to do with the labor involved with the dish. As I mentioned earlier, these dumplings aren't submerged in soup. The soup is wrapped inside the dumpling. This makes it a technically challenging dish. They've got to make sure the consistency of the dumpling skin and the filling is just right, or else the whole thing will fall apart during the wrapping or steaming process. Is this different to xiaolongbao? Because you say soup dumpling. Compared to xiaolongbao, xiaolongbao actually in the mix with the meat contains a lot of um, the fat. And depending on which store you patron, sometimes they put in gelatinized soup already in the meat mix. So when it's steamed, it becomes part of, like, you know, the dumpling. Imagine that on that scale, but for something the size of half of your palm. It's a lot more harder to control. So Lisa, for the people sitting at home who haven't had the pleasure of eating one of these soup dumplings, so how does the eating of them go? Because like with Shalombao, you know, it's a very specific process. You prod it with your chopstick and let the, the air out and the soup out. Is it the same? with the big soup dumplings, or is it totally different? I think it's always the thing, right, Charmaine? Like, you know, being able to lift the soup dumpling out of the steamer and into your bowl in one piece is always, like, the challenge. Oh, it's impossible with the jumbo soup dumpling. It's massive and heavy. But that's a challenge. You're trying to do that. And when you get it on your plate, more or less it's the same. You poke a hole in it, and then you try to get the soup. But don't forget to add a bit of red vinegar in it. Traditionally, back in the day when it wasn't so un-PC, um, soup dumplings actually was made with shark fin. It's, that's why it commanded a higher price. And um, nowadays they don't, but I feel like the fillings, I don't know if it's nostalgia, but like it feels strange to eat it without the red vinegar. Mm, it just balances the richness of the broth, I think, and the, and the filling. I think so too, right? And the skin, sometimes they use like that alkali kind of wontonish mm. kind of skin. So I feel like when you add the red vinegar and it just balances it a little bit better. That's how I feel about it. You need to fill the dumplings well. This is Chef Man Hong Sing. He's a dim sum chef at Fengxing Restaurant. You also need to steam them properly. If you steam them for too long, the soup will leak out of the dumplings. Then you can't sell them anymore. This is why soup dumplings are so rare now. Not many people know how to make them. Chef Man said it took him around two to three months just to learn how to make the soup dumplings. I mean, I don't think I could learn that in two to three months, honestly. How about you, Sam? Yeah, that seems like a challenge. And where did Chef Man learn to make it? Are there soup dumpling classes that you can take? Or did he learn it on his own or from a a seafood? Like, what, what happened there? Well, he learned while he was on the job, but that's not an easy thing to do at all. So he would tell me that he was only initially hired to sell dim sums when he was in his teens. I'd wake up at 4am and make shumai and beef balls. I wasn't allowed to make hargao yet. At around 7am, I started serving dim sum for the breakfast service. Then, 
at around 3 to 4 p.m., I had to clean and tidy the tables. I didn't get any formal opportunities to make them some. Only after two or three years, when the senior chefs recognised my potential, and I still hadn't given up yet, that I was allowed to really step into the kitchen and learn. Only then can he be parked next to the dim sum counter and make dim sums for real. There is no real instruction. It's watch what I do and see if you could do it. So it's not a very, um, it's not very egalitarian then in a, in a dim sum kitchen. It, it's kind of like you're not going to have the chance. You just look and learn. And then if you mess up, you know, you go back to the bottom of the pile. Is it pretty brutal in that respect? It could be depending on the chef, I guess. But he was telling me like, you know, he made it sound like he really understood like, you know, why the chefs treated them that way. He's like, well, like, you know, if I was using their ingredients, then if I stuff it up, it would waste the ingredients and nobody could eat it. So why would they give me a chance? And I'm thinking, well, if you can't make mistakes, you can't learn. But like, that's not the attitude back then. It's funny because I'm thinking about how would you practice, right? It's not like you have a bit of Play-Doh and you can just practice over and over and over again how to make this dumpling. Or did they, you know? I think he would—he was grabbing dough or making his own dough just with water and flour and trying to emanate what they have there. But even the mix of how you make the skin is very different for a dim sum than anything else. And I suspect that each of these old restaurants have their own formulas mm. and recipes. Their own ratios. Because I think it's so. so challenging. I don't know if you've ever tried making dumplings. Uh, or hagao, but I did a class once at a restaurant here in Hong Kong and it looked so simple. You know, it's just a mixture of a few different types of flour, water, salt. But when it actually gets down to like Thai, you know, like kneading the dough and then getting it to that perfect texture. And then you got to wrap it and then it can be too thick, too thin, and you don't even find out until you steamed it. Because I thought I made some pretty perfect looking hagao, for example. And then when it came out of the steamer, it was completely opaque. It was so thick. Like, because <laughs> the perfect hagao has a translucent skin, right? Yes, yeah. The perfect I, thought it was skin. I thought it was thin enough, but <laughs> apparently not. Yeah, perfect hagao, you're supposed to actually see the veins yeah. on the prawn, right? Yeah. But anyhow, um, for anyone who wants to become a dim sum chef, you've got to start from the bottom of the kitchen. As a newbie, you get delegated to dishwashing duty, washing the produce, or other menial tasks. So there seems to be some parallels here with how sushi chefs work their way to simply handling rice, for example. So it took Chef Man a couple of years to be allowed to even start making dim sum for customers. But actually, how common is that trajectory? Does it take people that long before they're allowed to formally make dim sum? Mr. Tam said it all depends on the chef's talent. If you're talented, you could learn everything in three years. If you're not, you won't make a single dim sum on your own at all. Besides learning on the job like Chef Man did, is there another way for people to learn how to make dim sum? Perhaps an easier way? Well, in Hong Kong, you can attend culinary schools. And the Chinese Culinary Institute has been around 10 years. I think before it was like a branch of the Vocational Training Council under a different name, but they branched out and formed the Chinese Culinary Institute. And it 
prides itself in providing a systematic training model for chefs. The dim sum course lasts for 14 months, but after that, they can graduate to the wok stir fries, the baking and the roasting, all these other different parts they could train them. I think it's still a three-year accreditation and they could even move up and attend college somewhere else after they have that diploma. Dexter Chiu just started attending CCI this year, and he said he preferred learning at an institution rather than immediately working at a restaurant. I think learning at an institution is better. The teachers here can give us better instructions. If I want to learn at a restaurant, I think it'll be a bit chaotic because the head chefs will be busy working. So I think getting trained at an institution is better for my learning progress. I can take it at my own pace. Wow. So it seems like a a pretty rough road. You've got to be dedicated to Mm. stay the course, it seems, right? Yeah. I feel like we're at an impasse in the industry where you have the old guard who would only accept things done a certain way. Because I did ask Mr. Tam, would you accept someone that graduated from, like, you know, an accredited course? And he said, well, of course we'll accept them. But they still have to learn from the bottom. And I'm not sure that really is like the payoff that people coming from a course would look for. Honestly, if they have, even if they only spent 14 months doing the dim sum course, I'm sure they could already start at a hotel somewhere. Yeah, does it seem like the very traditions that kind of make dim sum such a special food institution, you could say, these days were, you know, a lot of younger people coming up not only are we ever more inclined for one in quicker gratification, but also there are so much more opportunities these days, right? So are these traditions of making people work really hard at it, is that also kind of hindering the industry a bit and not really providing fertile ground for new chefs to come up as much? I feel that the traditional way of apprenticeships was built in a very different labour market. Back then, we had a lot of labor and not enough jobs. So people were willing to learn and do anything to make a buck. But at the moment, Hong Kong, especially in the F&B industry, has a negative unemployment rate. So hard for us to attract talent into these industries. So, you know, having an accredited course means that they have structure and they definitely would come out with knowledge rather than maybe spending three years having the chef deeming that you're not talented enough to learn anything. That is so true. It's it's almost as if by formalizing the whole culinary diploma and formalizing the techniques and the skills of dim sum making, you're kind of validating it for a different set of eager learners out there. It kind of gives the art of dim sum a little bit more, I don't want to say credibility because I think it's an incredibly difficult skill to learn and it does deserve way more recognition than it already does. But I think it will help some people enter the industry who may not have considered it before because there's more structure. As you say, there's a kind of something at the end of the road rather than going in blind or going in without any kind of an idea of how you're going to progress. Exactly. And at the same time, There's something to be said, like, you know, these old seafoods know something that the guy who designed the course at the CCI doesn't. There's a certain way that they do certain things that might be just different, but then 
it could be lost if there's no younger people entering in the apprenticeships. But I do feel for them, like, you know, if I get a choice, I'm going to go to an accredited course. And then after that, I could even go into hospitality management. I didn't even have to stay in the kitchen. Or if I wanted to stay in the kitchen, I could go straight away and work for an international hotel where I will get ample opportunities to work with a superior class of masters that have been internationally recognized, right? Not saying that the chefs at local restaurants aren't superior, but they just like, you know, graduates of CCI include Jason Tang that won the Michelin Mm. star for Manho, Um, Edwin Tang from Cuisine Cuisine that also, I think it was a Michelin plate that he got for Cuisine Cuisine. So, I mean, learning from these guys aren't shabby at all. Mr. Tam said there are more women joining the industry now, but this labor shortage will continue to persist. And that's another reason why certain dim sum dishes are endangered now. The chefs who know how to make them are slowly retiring, and you don't have younger chefs taking up the mantle. So I was super excited to see the giant bamboo steamer lid lifted and then those two little plump fluffy rolls came into view. It's my favorite old school dim sum, which is the la charangun. It's the preserved sausage that's wrapped in a really fluffy yeasted uh, dough. I've heard about this. It's kind of fabled because I haven't seen it before. So this is super exciting to me as well. They're kind of cute though. A little bit, a, a lot smaller than the dai bao. Mm-hmm. What does it remind you of, Sam? It looks. It looks like the Michelin Man, the Michelin Man's arms, or baby Michelin Man arms, <laughs> Michelin baby arms. Oh, that's so morbid. They've just been lopped off. Sacrifice. Yeah, it's got a plump little um, preserved sausage in the middle. It's wrapped all around. It's got these little segments. So yeah, let's dig in. It looks amazing, yeah. I wonder if, um, I wonder why sausage bowl is falling out of favor and I think it might be because it's quite um I mean you've got whole preserved sausage in there there's a lot of fat it's a lot of salt you know it's quite luxurious as a as a dim sum yeah I feel like that that's probably a, a good guess because you know they remain pretty popular right these preserved sausages I mean I love them mm. so I think it must be a health thing because yeah. they're probably not very good for you I know right because you normally would have the preserved sausage chopped up into little pieces and you have it in your mm. um, your sticky rice yep. uh, so to have a whole one like like a hot dog mm. yeah. it's pretty uh pretty indulgent mm. I'll tell you what about that oh, it's so good oh my gosh you that got that, like, that rose wine mm-hmm. aroma is super good you can mm-hmm. see the little fat mm. 
Yeah, it's just as good as it sounds. Mm. It is absolutely delicious. Right? So a little sweetness, mm -hmm. a little savoriness, yeah. soft bun. Yeah, and then the the um, the sausage is pretty hard, so mm. you got kind of that that difference of textures. You sink mm. and then you hit it and then you crunch. Oh, it's through. pretty good. It's gorgeous, isn't it? It's got a little snap as well. Mm. Yum yum. Dim sum dishes like soup dumplings and pork liver siu mai are at risk of extinction. But there's a restaurant in Hong Kong that's trying to revitalize these dishes. Let me take you to Man Yun Restaurant, located in Wong Tai Sin. Fewer people are making these sorts of dim sum because they're very labor-intensive. This is C.K. Poon, the operations director of Man Yun Restaurant. Many of these dishes use special ingredients such as intestines. There's pork liver, chicken liver... These ingredients require a lot of prep work. Take pork liver siumai, for example. The pork liver in this dish is unique because we use a fatty liver, which makes it a top-quality liver. The chef first needs to pick top-quality livers and clean them properly, otherwise they have an unpleasant smell and taste. Then the chef needs to continuously run them underwater and marinate them in ginger juice to give them a pleasant texture. Not many chefs are willing to put in the time and effort to make these, and even fewer chefs can make them well. That's why these dishes are endangered. I love pork liver siu mai, but I guess people do think of it as a very cheap item out there, but I don't think anyone realizes how much labor goes into the process of making it. Gosh, have you ever bought one from the market? Like The process of trying to clean one just makes you think like some food you need to just go out and eat. Like, you know, they deserve me paying for this. They do all the hard work. We just eat it. I know, right? It's just like, gone in like less than 30 seconds. Right? You just like pop it in your mouth and then like these guys spent like hours and hours and hours trying to clean it. Why, why, why do you have to clean it? Think of the liver um, as a function of the body. It does the same thing for the pig, right? Like, you know. <laughs> so, you know, it's actually a pretty dirty organ. And okay. to actually press um, all the toxins and anything that gives it an overpowering gaminess, it's up to the chef on how he cleans it and how he tempers that with what the customer is tasting. If he doesn't put a lot of effort into cleaning it and trimming it in the right way or like using alcohol and other things to counteract the flavor, you could end up with something pretty stinky and gamey. Yeah, I've had some pretty bad ones when you can just tell it's not clean enough. You've got that bloody metallic tang to it. Sometimes it's a bit bitter. And then not even talking about how some people just completely butcher the steaming of it and you just get this crumbly, grey, dry siumai. Anyways, it does take a skill and I am appreciative of it. I order it every chance I get whenever I see it, just because I know it's, it's hardly around anymore. Sam, do you eat pork liver? I don't actually know that I've had pork liver at all before. I would say it is hard for anyone who didn't grow up eating Asian food to actually gravitate towards that kind of ingredient. Like Charmaine says, it's not on the menu a lot anymore. And I think we'll be eating pork liver more likely in um, congee nowadays. Yeah, yeah. Congee, um, some like rice noodles maybe. You know, you've got mm. the famous noodle shops in Shamshepo that do it. Um, but yeah, pork liver just doesn't have the sexiness as, you know, like foie gras or even chicken livers. Uh, so I don't know. It's funny. You never see a chicken liver siu mai, do you? Discriminating against the <laughs> livers. Poor, poor pigs. Poor pigs. So Manyun specializes in these rare dim sum dishes. But given that so much labor goes into making them, it's interesting that CK actually chooses to focus on them. 
I mean, it doesn't seem like these dishes are very profitable. These dishes tend to involve inexpensive ingredients, like think intestines. It's very hard for them to charge a high price. Why would we sell these dishes when they require a lot of effort but aren't very profitable? It's because of our nostalgia. It's the flavors of our childhood. We think it's the most organic flavor, the most natural. Our chef, who's even older than me, said he also ate these when he was a kid. So why can't we pass these flavors down to the next generations? That's the sentiment that we work with. Man Yun also served dishes like black sesame rolls and rainbow jelly. The one with the umbrella! I love those! And it is not complete without the little umbrella. I get very mad if it doesn't have the umbrella. The umbrella is a must-have. I used to beg my parents to order that so I could take the umbrella home for my barbie. Oh, same. (laughs) Some of our customers who are in their 20s have never seen these foods before. That gives us a chance to tell them the stories behind the dishes, that these dishes are local Hong Kong desserts. And according to CK, these dishes remain popular today. Each generation has different preferences. We think most people who enjoy these dishes are those in their 50s or 60s, because it's a taste of childhood nostalgia for them. But there's actually a lot of younger people enjoying these foods as well, because these dim sum dishes are rare. As I mentioned before, not many chefs are making these foods now, and even fewer can make them well. So when these foods are still available, people deliberately seek them out. There's still an appetite for endangered dim sum. The lingering question is, who's gonna make them? So I was meaning to ask both you guys, with the disappearing, the endangered dim sum what do they mean for you guys, Shaman and Lisa, when you were growing up? Do you have like memories with grandparents or parents eating them? Do your parents or grandparents lament that they're disappearing? What does it mean to you that they are disappearing? I think it's just with, with any kind of nostalgic dish, right? You just feel that because it's a part of our collective memory and when things are not kind of carried on or they're not being created because of you know, because of things like labor shortage or kind of changing taste, you kind of feel a bit disappointed. You know, why can't we preserve these traditions? Why aren't there more people, you know, trying to create these things? It's scary to think that there may be a generation that will never try certain dishes. I mean, I can't think of any that we haven't tried that our parents reminisce about. But I feel like the older generation, I don't know, sometimes it feels like they're like, well, you know, it was never that healthy anyway. So I'm not too sad about it, but at the same time. I think with my mom, she reminisces about not necessarily a dim sum dish, but an item, which is which is uh, the, yeah. the crackly bits after you extracted all the oil from the pork fat. And usually they would actually eat that with some lard and these crispy leftover bits. And is, that she, like, is that like crackling? It is. Right, okay. It oh, is, my God. Oh, yeah, this sounds great all of a sudden now. Your luckily. heart just skipped a beat, <laughs> it didn't did, it? It did, did. But crackling <laughs> is the skin. This is actually like leftover fat. So it's actually even more melt in your mouth, I would say. There are still places that do a, a little bit as a novelty, but my mother says like, oh, it's delicious. It is absolutely unhealthy. That's why it's off the menu now. What else is there? I feel like it's part of history It's part of Hong Kong's identity, if you ask me, that like, you know, these dim sums that were made like for its flavor, for its purpose to feed people, you know, the Dai Bao was definitely something just to feed the coolies. 
mm. right? Like if we go to a dim sum restaurant, we ordered one, we just like, and we ate one on our own. That's it. So it's uh, it's good fuel for rickshaw carriers and exactly odd, odd runners and. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's like the, the pork liver siumai. I mean, it's got a ton of nutrients, right? It may not be the sexiest dumpling around, but it has a lot of uh, good qualities and nutritional value that the older generation really value. They needed the calories back then. Yes. And secondly, um, again, we were reflecting on the labor shortage and the labor abundance. Back then, getting someone to like cut it, trim it, and wash it was a lot cheaper than it is nowadays. And it was a cheap way to add extra flavor to the siumai. But nowadays, it's cheaper to sprinkle some crab roe on it. Or caviar. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, it's not cheaper to put caviar, but... Everybody's doing everybody's it. Everybody's doing it. <laughs> or add, they can add a premium because everyone recognizes mm. caviar as a premium ingredient. And instead of like, oh, like, I'm paying more for liver, why? Mm. So another question I've got, guys, is the endangered dim sum, like the, the big chicken buns, the sumai, pork liver, quail egg, whatever it is, do certain diasporas do them more than others? So, for example, do Aussie, Australia's, is one particular one gone over there and then in San Francisco another one's particularly prevalent or are they all like equally endangered? Now I have a theory it depends on the time that the diaspora formed in that certain city. Mm. Now in Sydney a lot of immigrants went over late 70s and then again in the late 90s. So our dim sum is actually quite fashionable and of actually of high quality. We actually have a lot of supremely good chefs that came over during the late 90s. Unfortunately since COVID a lot of Chinese restaurants were so stigmatized, a lot of them went under. My favorite one in Sydney closed down. They made the best hagao. I would challenge that hagao with the one at Longinghin. Wow. And um, that place is gone. Marigold's gone. But maybe in other places where the diaspora went a little bit earlier, maybe San Francisco, maybe LA, maybe Canada. I don't know what time they descended upon Canada. But it depends on which time and what kind of dim sum they brought over with the chefs that knew what they were making at that time. Right, and that's interesting, yeah, and it makes a lot of sense. I mean, you mentioned San Francisco, L.A., and we absolutely see the Asian diaspora in these parts of the country that are already doing things with, say, Hong Kong's hat tan tanks. They're, like, bringing things back and they're repackaging it for a new audience. So I can absolutely see maybe perhaps, you know, the next generation of dim sum chefs, maybe they go abroad and they are bringing these traditions with them. I think you'll find that a lot of the times now that people outside of the country of origin from which the dish comes from are actually a bit more keen to kind of keep the tradition and keep it going in some ways. And then it kind of evolves and develops in an entirely new direction as well. So maybe we may not see, say, quail's egg siumai or thai bao in the same format, but it could actually maybe take a new and interesting form. It evolves. And that's sometimes an exciting thing as well. So that's all we have for this episode. If you want to learn more about endangered dim sum, check out Lisa's video and article on PostMag. You can find it all on scmp.com. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Bye. Let's spill the tea next time. <laughs> <laughs> Hold up. 
Hi, my name is Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic, and I'm excited to talk to you about Club Med. Club Med operates beach and mountain resorts and is the best all-inclusive getaway for families. They have Club Med Punta Cana, their flagship family resort, and many other options in Mexico, the Caribbean, and around the world. Club Med are the pioneers of the all-inclusive concept, which is the best way to vacation. Great for families, groups, or even solo travelers looking for land and water sports, delicious food and a place to make unforgettable memories. Visit clubmed.us, call 1-800-CLUB-MED or your travel advisor.